Welcome to Season 3 of American Political History, Conformity, War, and Liberty, Constructs of Conformity. The Bay now looked to consolidate their power in the New England region to protect the Commonwealth from outside contaminations. But first they would move to have total conformity within their own house before conforming those outside of their house. Their first action was to force the conformity of Salem. The magistrates appointed Hugh Peter to lead the church in Salem. Unlike Cotton, Hooker, or Williams, he was no scholarly figure, nor did he care to be one. His views were narrow. A parishioner's place was to toe the line. What he concerned himself with was sin, and he made sin vivid and personal, forcing those that hungered for salvation to face their sins. Hugh Peter forced the church in Salem to formally excommunicate Roger Williams. Then he wrote a new church covenant emphasizing obedience to those set over us in church and commonwealth, stating that members are not to reason for themselves in ways of opposition to the church, i.e., keep any dissenting opinions to yourself, make them public at your own risk and he forced all church members to sign this covenant under God. Then he searched out any and all of William's sympathizers within Salem, tried them publicly in the church, and then he judged them with excommunication from their fellow parishioners. This punishment could be pardoned if they publicly confessed, repented, and conformed to the church. He took the additional step of publishing to all other churches within the bay, a list of members of the Church of Salem that had been excommunicated for any reason, so that they too could bring the full weight of all of the bay on those that refused to conform to the demands of the commonwealth. We thought it bound in duty to acquaint you with the names of such persons as have had the great censure passed upon them in our church with the reason there of beseeching you in the Lord, not only to read their names in public to yours, but also to give us like notice of any dealt with in like manner by you, so that we may work towards them accordingly. Hugh Peter brought the Church of Salem to heal, into conformity with the rest of the bay. He also built the communication structures that allowed the clergy's punishments to reign over all of New England, not just the individual church or town where that person resided. In Boston, there was now another way for stifling dissent. In the church, they required a unanimous will of the congregation for important church decisions. Now this sounds democratic, like it should promote disagreement and debate. But because the culture demanded conformity, with no protections for dissenting views... This will-of-the-people requirement disempowered minority voices. In fact, it completely silenced them. For being the lone or few of a minority opinion in public view only exposed you to admonition from the clergy. The clergy of the Bay was moving not just to silence dissent. It was moving to eliminate the possibility of dissenting opinions. A member of the Church of Salem asked to be removed from his covenant with the Church of Salem. You have to remember, being accepted as a member of a church was considered a covenant with God. This ask to leave was almost like asking for a divorce. 
This parishioner gave his reason, and it was that he could no longer ask questions of the church leadership. So John Cotton traveled to Salem and preached that breaking one's covenant to your church was breaking your covenant with God. They then excommunicated the dissenting parishioner from the whole bay simply for asking to leave his church. These authoritarian acts of conformity was not the general policy view of Puritans in the English world. Puritans in New Hampshire would write back to England that the bay was trying to become a new world laud, but any protest to the commonwealth went unheard. The social pressure in the bay to conform was constant. The pressure to stay silent if one had an opinion that was not a part of the conformity was enormous. Some of those upset by this arbitrary use of power by the clergy asked John Cotton to write a clarifying legal code so that no one accidentally failed to abide by the bay's rules. John Cotton was not trained in English common law, and he wrote laws based on scriptural knowledge. Laws pertaining to God's will were left with such large legal holes that it expanded the powers of the clergy to force their conformity upon the bay. Cotton's draft would quickly be adopted by the magisterial court in New England and used as the basis for their legal code. This legal code and John Cotton's draft would be called the Body of Liberties, and it did have some basis in Magna Carta and the Petition of Right, but it reserved the use of scripture to nullify any human law. Cotton would comment about this legal accomplishment. No custom or prescription shall ever prevail among us that can be proven to be morally sinful by the word of God. Further, no man's life shall be taken away, no man's honor or good name shall be stained, no man's person arrested, restrained, banished, or dismembered unless it be by virtue of an expressed law of the country, or in the case of a defect of the law, by the word of God. He cited scripture that biblical laws always superseded the laws of man, and that the commonwealth had the spiritual duty to enact God's laws regardless of the constraints of the legal system of a human kingdom. Deuteronomy 13.6 gives authority for killing those that turn away from God. If your own brother, or your son, or daughter, or your wife you love, or your closest friend, secretly entices you, saying, Let us go and worship other gods, do not yield to him or listen to him, show him no pity, do not spare him or shield him, you must certainly put him to death. Exodus 22.20 Whoever sacrifices to any other god than the Lord must be destroyed. Leviticus 20.10 if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. The magisterial court moved to combine church discipline with government power. Anyone subject to excommunication for over six months that had not conformed and repented to fix the situation would be subject to legal beatings, fines, and banishment from the general court. Church and state was now one cooperating body politic. Liberty in the Bay was defined as the liberty to live a life that the magistrates and most freemen within the commonwealth defined as godly, and it was the responsibility of government to see to it that a godly life was lived by all of the people within the commonwealth. Winthrop thought that liberty, true liberty, was to live in a state that was godly and to quietly submit unto godly authority, 
which was set over you. It was the liberty to choose, but only to choose one way, life under godly orthodox of the magistrates or the bay, or to be removed from society. The magistrates would regulate society into their perceived mold of godliness. When skilled labor became too expensive, the court simply legislated a fixed price. When fashion started to change, it legislated against what it called too much show. When men started wearing their hair long, they legislated short hair. People within the bay were to act the same, live the same, even wake up at the same time. In Hartford, there was orders to ring the town bell at the same time each morning, an hour before daybreak. And the law required that someone within each home make some light inside, or be up within about 15 minutes of that bell ringing. Now that the systems of conformity were in place in the bay, they turned to conforming the next potential threat to their commonwealth, Rhode Island. The bay feared that those in Rhode Island, with their polluted consciences, could spill that pollution back into the commonwealth. And the leaders of the commonwealth also saw Rhode Island as an economic opportunity. Winthrop had previously partnered with Williams to purchase land in Prudence, which was settled for raising cattle on the small islands around the Narragansett Bay, which had natural protections for their cattle against wolves. After all, the wolves couldn't swim to the islands. Even the Dutch found Rhode Island to be of annoyance, often commenting about those they had kicked out of their colony. I suppose that they went to Rhode Island, for that is the receptacle of all sorts of riffraff of people. Rhode Island is nothing else than the latrina of New England. The powers of New England now all set their sights on plundering Rhode Island. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating. And share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.